We get it. You're busy. You don't have time to waste on the mainstream media. That's why Salem News Channel is here. We have hosts worth watching, actually discussing the topics that matter. Andrew Wilkow, Dinesh D'Souza, Brandon Tatum, and more. Open debate and free speech you won't find anywhere else. We're not like the other guys. We're Salem News Channel. Watch anytime on any screen for free 24-7 at snc.tv. And on Local Now, Channel 525. This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome to the month of November. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh, and this is The Word to Stand On for Life, a program committed to taking your phone calls, answering your Bible questions, questions about stuff going on in your life. Whatever's on your heart, you just need to call us, 210-340-9585. If you're outside the local San Antonio area, you can call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR. Numerically, that's 630-5757. You can email your questions by emailing questions at calvaryessay.com. Or you can use our free Calvary Chapel mobile app. And if you are driving in your car, the safest way to call is to use the free KSLR mobile app. Just hit the call now banner at the top of the screen and everything will be uh, hands-free and you'll be connected directly to our studio producer. Hope you had a great weekend in church. We really did. You know, it felt like uh, we were a, a week behind um, because it, it just felt like it should be Communion Sunday uh, yesterday, but it wasn't. So Communion Sunday is coming up this week. And by the way, don't forget to turn your clocks back. We get to balance out life when we get that extra hour of sleep back. Uh, we always here at Calvary Chapel, we have a free pancake breakfast on the two occasions each year where we turn our clocks either back like this time or forward uh, in the spring. And uh, it's always a neat time for us. So hope you had a great time in church yesterday. We had tons and tons of people here. It was just a good day. I pray that was the case for you. And I pray that people got saved. Yesterday I got to talk a little bit about this countdown in heaven, waiting for the last Gentile to get saved so we could be with Jesus. And if people got saved at your church yesterday, we're that much closer than we are right now. We've had some questions sent in. I'll get to those in a moment. But one of the things I want to do today at the beginning of the program is uh, talk about the chosen. I've had so many questions and calls about people wanting to know what I thought about the chosen. And I, I hadn't watched it. So I, I somebody graciously sent me um, uh, uh, the link to it. And, and I was able to watch it. And today I finished the second season uh, and um, I liked it. For the most part, I really, really liked it. I finally did find something in season two that I didn't like. Uh, I realized that the producers have artistic license and dramatic license, and I, I realized that they're, they're, they're basically interpreting, which is what we all do when we're reading the Bible. But the one thing that, that bothered me, and, and there was other things, there, there's been character developments. You know, Matthew is is on the autism spectrum. Uh, Peter had a gambling problem. Uh, Mary Magdalene in season two, she sort of um, uh, falls back into her old life for a brief period of time. Uh, and and I'm, I'm not fans of, of all of that. I, I think that's unnecessary character development. But I understand uh, that that that's the dramatic license that they have. The thing that really bothered me, though, is as season two winds down, it, it finishes with the Sermon on the Mount. 
not not Jesus giving it, just the events leading up to it. And um, the way they characterized Jesus preparing for the Sermon on the Mount was troublesome for me. Um, they they uh, demonstrated or, or tried to demonstrate that Jesus was nervous. You see him out alone at night talking to his father, and he's practicing the Sermon on the Mount. Um, um, he seems a little insecure, uh, asking people to really be ready for this sermon and help me. And um, uh, his mother is encouraging him. Um, and, and of course, none of that happened that way. Um, Jesus said, I only uh, say and do what I see and hear my father say and do. And Jesus, given the spirit without measure, this wasn't a staged event. This was something that happened. And uh, Jesus certainly wasn't outpacing, trying to rewrite, write and then rewrite the lines. And I think that was unnecessary. And I think, I think that's getting pretty close to a line where you're misrepresenting Jesus. Now, having said that, uh, all in all, through, through season two, uh, I think it's, it's worthwhile. Uh, I, I think it's something that uh, families could sit and watch together. And I do believe that it has, at least through this point, a lot more benefit than it does difficulties. So um, those of you who've been asking, thank you for caring about my opinion. Um, But uh, so far, so good with that one exception. Oh, my producer just reminded me I didn't say anything about our Monday night Bible studies tonight. Tonight here at Calvary Chapel, we have our Monday night Bible studies. Um, men and women, uh, May Cruzado will be teaching the ladies, Pastor Ken uh, teaching the men, and of course our high school and junior high school Bible studies going on at the same time. So you can make it a family thing. Everybody worships together and then they go their separate direction in the church. So uh, that's all tonight at 7 o'clock. Ladies, you can watch at calvarysa.com. It's always better to be here in person because that way you can participate in the Q&A sessions that go on afterwards. And some of the ministry that happens here in the body is just fantastic. So all that's going on. Our first question, this is a uh, follow-up to a question last week from Jose from our email inbox. He says, thank you, Pastor Ron, for your response. It makes total sense to follow up the, that question. I'm part of a church, and they believe in church discipline. However, the leader who committed a sin repented, but they made him sit down in the front row six months. He's a young guy, but they're treating him like a child. Is that okay as church discipline? Uh, it's never okay, Jose, to treat somebody like a child. It's never okay to make a spectacle of a repentant sinner. Now, we make spectacles, and we're supposed to make spectacles, putting them out of the church, having nothing to do with them, for sinners who are not repentant. But never, ever, ever are we supposed to make a spectacle of somebody who has repented of their sin. That's what we want them to do. So here's what you do. You can send them down for six months, and I don't know... um, um, this leader, uh, too much is given, much is required. So we need to be set down. And depending on the sin, and I don't recall uh, you saying what the sin was, uh, I think there are sins that disqualify a, a, a man from being a leader or a pastor from being a pastor. Um, young, old, I don't think that matters to who much is given, much more is required. Uh, but you never, ever make him feel at this point for like a second class sin. There are consequences. And a restoration process involves dealing with consequences. But to make him sit down, to make a spectacle, have people talking about him, uh, to be unloving toward him, I think is uh, inappropriate. So um, that's the best I can do without the details. But remember, Jose, there are some sins. I think when a pastor uh, is involved in adultery, um, when he cheats on his wife, uh, then then that disqualifies a pastor from being a pastor. Still got gifts, he can still teach the Bible in small groups, but but when somebody is a pastor and they violate that marriage covenant, I, I think that's above and beyond. I think stealing would be one of those situations. I think misappropriation of money might be one of those things. But but remember, when somebody's repentant, the the process is designed to restore not to punish, but to restore. And and I think this is um, probably a little bit over that line. 
So thank you, Jose, for the question. I appreciate it very, very much. Here is an anonymous question from our email box. Pastor Ron, you spoke yesterday about the rapture. But if you can, can you basically break it down to dummy terms for me how all the rapture will happen? You mentioned a thousand years and seven years, but I was a little confused. Sorry, I misplaced my thoughts or mished. Misheard. Misheard you, but would you mind explaining to me a little slower? Thank you. I certainly will, Anonymous. The rapture is very, very important. Let me start by saying that we all should long for the coming of Jesus. I tried to make that clear yesterday in our message. We were closing uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, uh, verses 51 and 52, is the rapture of the church, a mystery that's being revealed for the very first time. So here's what the end time scenario is going to be. The very next thing that happens uh, on the prophetic calendar is the rapture of the church. There's nothing else that has to be fulfilled before Jesus comes for his church. We know he's coming soon, and by soon I mean suddenly, without warning. I don't mean soon in terms of days, weeks, or years, but he's coming suddenly, and there won't be any time to prepare. I mean, once he's here, once he gives us that last trumpet call for us to be with him, um, uh, we're going to be translated instantly. Our bodies are going to be changed. We're in a bodies fit to, to, to for, for eternity, forever and ever. And that, Anonymous, is the very next thing to happen um, in terms of uh, the end times. Um, the rapture is going to be... Uh, for a period of seven years. We're going to be in heaven with Jesus at the marriage supper of the Lamb. That's when we are the guests of honor at Jesus' wedding to us. And during that time on earth is going to be the Great Tribulation. The Great Tribulation is going to last for seven years. It will be the worst seven years in the history of the world. Now remember, we're going to be in heaven. Jesus said that we should pray told his disciples, and by extension us, that we should pray that we would be counted worthy to escape that kind of destruction, and we're going to be able to escape it because God's wrath is being poured out on a Christ-rejecting world, and of course, we who are his haven't rejected him, and the wrath for our sins has already been paid. Jesus paid it. So for seven years, the world is going to be horrible. In Revelation chapter 19, at the end of the seven years, Jesus is going to come back. And we're going to come with him. Now, when he comes back, he's going to destroy his enemies with a word. It'll be instant. He's going to destroy his enemies, and he is going to reestablish his kingdom on the earth. It will last for 1,000 years. And during that 1,000 years, we're going to rule and reign with Jesus in some capacity that we have absolutely no detail on, but we're going to rule and reign on a restored earth with perfect justice, with a perfect king, a, 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 a potentate, really. I mean, uh, uh, this king isn't going to be worried about our opinions. He's not going to take polls. Uh, he, he's going to rule and reign in absolute righteousness. And that's going to last for a thousand years. And then after the thousand years, the devil who has been locked up for that thousand years is going to be released again. And the reason he's going to be released is just for a short time, he's going to be released to give the people on the earth. Now, think about this. Multiplied millions, billions of people will be born in flesh and blood bodies. You and I will be in our glorified, resurrected bodies. But billions of people are going to be on this earth for a thousand years who never had a chance to say yes to Jesus. They were, their, their devotion to God, their worship of God will be forced. And, of course, Jesus gives everybody a choice. And so at the end of the thousand years, Satan's going to be released. He's going to deceive the people. And uh, um, there's going to be multitudes of people that reject him. Uh, after that, the great white throne judgment, and then a new heaven and a new earth, and we will be with the Lord forever and ever in uh, an environment that we can't even begin to imagine. So I hope that's clear. That's as slow as, as I can do it. And I, I think, uh, I hope pretty, pretty clear. Thank you very, very much, Anonymous. Here is a question from our email inbox. This time from Matthew. 
Blessings, Pastor Ron. Great message yesterday. Well, thank you, Matthew. Would you mind expounding on the graves opening up? You'd mentioned about the graves opening up to be more symbolic rather than literal. My apologies if I misheard you. Thank you, Pastor Ron. Love you. Thank you, Matthew. Uh, yeah, I think you did mishear me, or, or more likely, I didn't speak clearly. Um, the, the graves opened up. Uh, I, I spoke uh, about in another study about... Uh, Matthew chapter 27, uh, when Jesus died and the earth began to shake, the tombs were opened. And in Matthew chapter 27, the bodies of many righteous men who had who had been dead um, came to life and they were seen walking around in the streets of Jerusalem. Now, uh, what I said about the graves opening up yesterday was uh, there is a, 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 a teaching that says, um, when Jesus comes for his church, the dead in Christ are going to rise first. Now, that's the Bible. But what some people take that to mean is that the people who died before Jesus came. Um, let me just put this simple. If I died before Paula uh, and and Jesus already come, then he'd open up the grave I was in. I'm not going to be buried, but that's not the point. Uh, and I would be, I, I would go in the rapture before her. That's not what is being said, Matthew. Um when somebody dies, right now, a believer dies in Christ, uh, instantly we go into the presence of the Lord. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, and there's, that's instant. It also means that those who have died will be there before those of us who are alive at the, at the coming of the Lord for his church. So that's all that meant, and that's what I tried to, to, uh, to communicate. Um, so uh, the graves opening up was simply what some people teach. Uh, I don't believe that's the case. I've done a lot of funerals. You know, uh, when we go out to Fort Sam Houston and do funerals, and, and uh, obviously there's a bunch of white grave markers out there, uh, it's very tempting to preach that, you know, the, Jesus is coming, and, and the, the instant before he does, these graves could open up, and the believers would be taken to be with I just don't think... Uh, Matthew, that that is um, the, the correct understanding of it. It just means that people who die in Christ are going to be with Christ immediately. When we die, we'll be with him. Or when we are raptured, we will be with him as well. Thank you for the, the encouragement, Matthew. Thank you very, very much. Three four zero ninety five eighty five for your live calls and questions. Let's go to line one and talk with D in San Antonio. D, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Hi, Pastor Ron. How are you? I'm doing well. Thank you, Dee. Okay, so uh, we discussed last week, uh, but I wanted to continue our conversation for clarification. Uh, Because of Adam's sin, we are all going to die. With that in mind, I have a theory about who the two witnesses will be during the tribulation period. We talked about (laughs) it. Okay. The first is obviously Elijah, and I totally agree. He died. He didn't die, but he was taken up in a chariot of fire. But I wholeheartedly believe that he would be the he would be a, one of the two witnesses. Now, my second, instead of Moses, I asked you to consider Enoch. Okay, mm-hmm. the, he was the first prophet in the Bible. God was so pleased with him that Enoch didn't die, but was not because God took him. Okay, mm-hmm. Moses died, and God buried him. So Enoch, I believe, to me, is an obvious choice. If it's not Enoch, what is the Enoch's state? Where is he? Is he in heaven? Is he in a physical body? Did he die? Is he going to die? He shouldn't because he's so old. He should be dead by now. <laughs> but um, you, <laughs> you state a scripture of why Elijah would be one of the witnesses, but mm-hmm. why would Moses? Because he did die. And I'll get off the phone and listen to you on the radio. Okay, Dee, thank you very, very much. Now I know Dee didn't mean this, but 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 she misspoke briefly. She said, and I just want to correct this for the audience. She said because of Adam's sin, we 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 die. We're going to die. That's not why we're going to die. We're going to die because of our own sin. Uh, we inherited a sin nature from Adam. He's the federal head of all humanity, and and because he sinned, we inherited that sin nature. That's why Jesus had to be born of a virgin. It's why Jesus was uh, um, um, born miraculously 
uh, as an act of the Holy Spirit, with God the Father as his Father. But we die for our own sins. Now, relative to the two witnesses, a couple of things. I, I, I really want you, Dee, and everybody else to understand, I love Enoch. He's one of my favorite people in all of the Bible. And I have preached messages about Enoch that make that really, really clear. Enoch was a man who heard the word of God and was transformed by it. For 65 years, he was like everybody else. And if we remember, everybody else was um, only evil all the time. Every inclination of man's heart was only evil all the time. And Enoch was like everybody else. And then he got a message. It was a message about a son that would be born to him, Methuselah. When he dies, it will come, is sort of the summary of that message. That's what his name means. Judgment will come. Um, And um, Enoch heard the word, and he took it to heart. And at 65 years of age, now for us that's old, but in in that time frame, D, uh, that's just being a baby. For, For 300 years, Enoch turned his back on the world and walked with God. Now, we know Enoch was a preacher. We know that he shared, but but he didn't have people. He he was basically all alone. And his time every day was that, that time when he was able to walk with God. And as he walked with God, God was, as you said, so pleased that uh, uh, he took him to be with him. Now, Enoch is important for us because Enoch is a picture of the rapture of the church. In a world given over to evil, Enoch walked with God and God translated him. You ask what happened to his body. Is he dead? Is he alive? No, he's alive and he never experienced physical death. It was as though he was raptured in an instant with the Lord. And and you want to know what kind of body he has now? He's got a glorified, physical, resurrected body. And we know that to be true. Now, Enoch would have been in that group of Old Testament saints who was being held in paradise, Luke chapter 16. And Jesus set him free, just like he set all of the others free, and he went to heaven with him. But but uh, God just wanted to be with him. God was that pleased with him. Now, let's talk about the two witnesses, because I think this is important. Because Enoch didn't die, we cannot presume that he is uh, one of the witnesses. Just because there's two men that never died, Elijah and Enoch, um, we can't presume that they are the witnesses. Now, Elijah, as you said, we know for sure. Uh, Jesus said Elijah must come before that great and dreadful day of the Lord, before the second coming. So we know that Elijah is one of the witnesses. Now, the reason I believe with all of my heart, that the other witness is Moses is because uh, the two witnesses at the Western Wall, uh, the two witnesses have come to declare that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. Jesus repeatedly said uh, that the law and the prophets testify of me, and Moses and Elijah are the Old Testament symbols or representatives of the law and the prophets. Elijah was the prince of prophets. Moses, of course, was the bearer of the law. And so when when Jesus is coming back or getting ready to come back, the first three and a half years of the Great Tribulation, we're going to see the law and the prophets. Remember, they're going to be testifying in Jerusalem. At the Western Wall, they're going to be testifying to Jews that Jesus is the Messiah. And that's the law and the prophets. And every Jew recognizes that Moses is the law and Elijah is the prophets. And so it's going to be God saying, stripping really every excuse away, God simply saying the two prophets then and the two prophets now. Let's talk about Moses' body for a moment. It's clear that Moses died. It's also clear that God buried him. Uh, it's also clear that uh, in the New Testament that um, Michael the archangel and Satan disputed over Moses' body. And the reason that Michael was sent was because I believe God had other plans for Moses' body. And so Moses is uh, going to come back to life. He's going to testify uh, as a representative of the law along with Elijah, representative of the prophets, that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. 
And uh, that's what's going to cause them so much difficulty. They're going to be, um, people will be trying to kill them, get them out of the way. And finally, in the midpoint of the Great Tribulation, uh, God is going to allow Moses and Elijah to be killed, their bodies desecrated, dragged through the streets, while the whole world, literally the whole world rejoices. And then on the third day, they're going to be raised to life and, and ascend to heaven, much in the same way Jesus did, in full view of everybody else. And D, I think it, that's the time when the entire world, led by the Antichrist, I think that's the time the entire world sort of goes, uh-oh, we did it now. And I think that's what it is. So uh, there are people, just because of uh, Enoch's not not ever dying, um, there are people who say, well, it must be Enoch, and, and um, you know, that's a legitimate position. Uh, but I think it really messes with uh, the testimony of the two witnesses. I remember, the Jews in, in the Great Tribulation were still under a Jewish dispensation. God's attention turns completely again to Israel in the last seven years. And Jews need those people to listen to the law and the prophets testify of me, Jesus said. Dee, thank you for the call. I appreciate it very, very much. Well, we've got 30 minutes left in the Monday show, 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. This is the word to stand up for life. We'll be back in two minutes. Back to the word to stand on for life. We're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Now, here's Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome back to the program, 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Here is a question from Patrick. And Patrick, I have to apologize to you on Friday. I, I just touched on this question, and I said I'd get back to you at the top of the program Monday, and I just realized that I didn't do that. So here's the question from Patrick from Friday that I wanted to expand on just a little bit. He said, what is the difference between conviction and condemnation? Patrick, the difference is, and I I did get this out, but without any explanation. Conviction is a work of the Holy Spirit, and it draws you close to Jesus. Condemnation is a work of the devil, and it draws you farther away from Jesus. Now, as simple as that distinction is, emotionally, it's really hard sometimes to figure out the difference and how they feel. You know, conviction. Paula is always saying, "I love conviction," and God bless her; she really does. When Paula hears the word, if there's something in her heart that needs to be dealt with, she wants to deal with it. And we should all be like that. She's my hero. I'd like to be like like her when I grow up. Um, but but sometimes that conviction, you know, our, our flesh is guilty of something that we like doing. And that conviction, we resist a little bit. And then the conviction grows a little bit heavier. Sometimes it feels a whole lot like condemnation. But remember, how you respond will tell you whether it's conviction or condemnation. Condemnation is simple. We've all failed And we've all said, God, I'm so sorry. And yet we keep beating ourselves up. And and we'll say things like, well, I don't even feel like reading the Bible now. I'm so terrible. And and I don't feel like going to church. Everybody's going to know what I've done. That's just the devil trying to draw you away from the body of Christ, trying to draw you out of the Word of God, and trying really to get you to that place where you're unable or unwilling to receive the forgiveness that God freely offers. Conviction draws us to that place where we say, Jesus, I'm so sorry. And then the Holy Spirit, God's wonderful, marvelous grace, washes over us. And we put it behind us and we move on. Let me say one other thing, Patrick, and this is why I wanted to revisit the question. We who are believers need to be a lot better at receiving God's grace. We don't have to feel terrible about the sins that we commit. Once we've dealt with them honestly, and we confess those sins to God, and by confession, I don't just mean the words, 
But confession, it really means to agree with God. God, what I did was horrible. I knew it was wrong when I did it, and I I shouldn't have done it, but I did it anyway, and I'm so very, very sorry. I don't want to do it ever again. That's what confession really is. And when we get to that place, then we need to stop feeling bad about what we've done. And even when other people want a pound of flesh, you know, when, 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 well, I can't believe that you just got over your sin. That's what God wants us to do. The longer we let the devil condemn us, Romans chapter 8 verse 1 says, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If there's no condemnation, why do we allow him to condemn us? And we've got to get to that place where we realize that the longer we feel condemned, the farther away from Christ we are, the farther away from Jesus we are, the more likely we are to sin again. God wants us to get back in the game. He wants us to use the gifts that he's given us. All he wants is a humble and contrite heart. In Psalm 51, David's masterpiece of repentance. And I've often said on this program that that David, I believe, is described as a man after God's own heart because David really hated his sin. Now, he sinned a lot, but he hated it. And he was, I think, the best repenter probably who's ever walked the face of the earth. And God recognized that. So as Christians, what we need to do is get to that place where when we sin, we can say, oh, I'm so disappointed, God, I'm so sorry. We let him say it's okay. And then we get busy about the Father's business again. That's when the Holy Spirit is at work. Condemnation keeps you away from that place. So, Patrick, I hope that is a better answer than I had time for on Friday. Here is a question from Scott. Um... Pastor Ron, what, is, what exactly does it mean to pray, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done? Scott, this is one of those places where you follow the Lord's model of prayer. I think it will change your prayer life. I think it will, will, will revolutionize your prayer life. When you're saying, Thy kingdom come, Jesus, I'm ready for you to come. I'm ready for a world that you're going to be in charge of. I'm ready for a world where there's peace and where there's justice and when there's joy and where there's love, pure love. And then you say, thy will be done. And and, and remember, the, the Lord's model for prayer is just an outline. When you're praying these things line by line, God's going to fill in the blanks. So what I do, Scott, when I pray, thy kingdom come, Lord, I want you to come, and then the thy will be done part, we know when he's established his kingdom, it's going to be his will done on this earth. But then I say this, Lord, thy will be done in me. Right now today, thy will, not my will, thy will be done in me. And when we pray that, we're praying in the perfect, pleasing, acceptable will of God. So, Scott, that's what it means. And remember, this is just Jesus giving us a model for prayer. And uh, the first time I taught this, gosh, it's been more than 25 years probably now. But but going through that prayer, and I went through just line at a time, uh, a Sunday after Sunday. Um, Scott, that changed my prayer life more than anything else I've ever done. So listen to, take Jesus' model to heart, listen to the work of the Holy Spirit, And as you pray that outline, he'll sort of fill in the blanks and it'll be the Spirit to whom and through whom you are praying. So that's what it means. Jesus is going to come. He's going to establish his kingdom. His will is going to be done on earth. The way we can appropriate that is to say, okay, Lord, thy will be done in me today, right now. Now, if we'll pray that, Scott, if we let the Spirit of God transform our hearts during the course of those prayers, then what we end up with is a man or a woman who cannot miss out on the will of God for their lives. That's important. We're so worried about missing out on something we can't miss if we're hanging out with Jesus and if we're dying to self and saying no to us so we can say yes to his will for our lives. And then then his will becomes something that we don't have to search for. 
We just walk right into it. And Scott, that has really made um, a huge, huge difference um, in in uh, my life, prayer life, over these many, many years now. Good question. Three four zero ninety five eighty five or toll free eight seven seven six three zero KSLR for your questions. Frank says, "Is your ministry a fivefold?" Ministry, um, Frank. The idea of fivefold ministry is erroneous. Uh, that's out of uh, Ephesians chapter four. God gave some to be apostles and prophets, evangelists, and 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 pastors and teachers. Um, it's actually four in the Greek construction. Pastor and teacher is one office, and so so no. Uh, but but there is no legitimate fivefold ministry because there are no apostles and there are no prophets today. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20, makes that abundantly clear. So when you're talking about fivefold ministry, Frank, uh, what people are typically looking at is they're looking at um, apostles and prophets, and these are going to be over-the-top charismatic churches that really aren't tuned in much to what the Bible says. A lot of excitement, a lot of shouting, but, but, but not really any authority or power. Lots of goosebumps. Lots of experience, but no power that comes from heaven. So, uh, no, we're not a fivefold ministry. And by the way, one of the claims at the Mormon Church, uh, that one of their claims to legitimacy is that they still have a, a board of apostles. And they say, well, that makes us the only legitimate church because we're the only one that still has a board of apostles that's passed down through time. And uh, obviously they're wrong about that, Frank. But um, all we have to do to stay healthy is remember uh, there are no prophets, there are no apostles, and churches that claim they have apostles and prophets are churches that are out of order and out of control. Let's go to our friend Reuben from Seguin on line one. Reuben, thanks for calling. You're on the air. God bless you, Pastor Ron. How are you doing today? I'm doing well. My voice is a little tired from yesterday, but I'm doing really well. I could tell, I could tell, but in the name of Jesus, clear it up, clear it up. <laughs> um, Thank you, Ruben. <laughs> um, yes, sir, yes, sir. Uh, I, I, you know, as you know, I've been reading, uh, started reading again, and I'm in the book of Luke now. Uh, oh, good. Reading, yeah, I'm just just uh, reading his uh, his uh, um, pers- uh, perspective of, I guess, of Jesus' ministry. I, I have a question. Um, the only time that I can recall the Holy Spirit being uh, mentioned that it actually went into somebody was when Jesus uh, had gotten baptized. Uh, if I'm not if I'm not mistaken, uh, the dove uh, was a symbol of the Holy Spirit that came upon him, which I mean into him as well. So my question is: this, uh, the apostles? I don't know if I missed it, but did they have the Holy Spirit? Because I don't remember reading anything about that, or is that just, you know, just something that wasn't spoken? It's, uh, yeah. you know. Oops, we lost Reuben. Oh, okay. Hi, Reuben. No, no, I'm here. Ruben, I'm, here. I'm, here. I'm here. Okay. Okay, good. Uh, Reuben, a couple of things. One, uh, you missed one. John the Baptist was filled with Holy Spirit from in, in his mother's womb. Uh, but but those are two exceptional cases. Jesus, uh, who received the the fullness of the Spirit, the Spirit without measure, when he was baptized, that was God saying, "This is my Son in whom I'm well pleased." And and Jesus would would walk this earth by the power of the Holy Spirit. Um, the the, uh, the the disciples who became apostles, uh, they didn't receive the Holy Spirit. Um, because the Spirit had not yet been given. They received the Spirit uh, when the resurrected Christ breathed on them. It says he breathed on them and said, Receive ye the Holy Spirit of God. And that's when they received the Holy Spirit. Now, in their case, because they were with Jesus when Jesus was alive in his incarnation, the Spirit was withheld uh, until... Uh, they believed. Obviously, they were believers. They were disciples of Jesus. But it wasn't until Jesus was 
crucified and risen from the dead, that he can impart the power of the Holy Spirit. And that's basically saying this. Uh, you didn't need the Holy Spirit while I was with you, because I was with you. But now you're on your own, but you're not really on your own, because here's the Holy Spirit, and he will lead you into all truth. So um, the, the one thing that uh, we need to remember, there's a, it's a different dispensation. Uh, the gospel accounts are Jewish in nature. Uh, they were all living under the law, and it wasn't until they were freed from the law and sins had been forgiven and the, the, the forgiveness had been accomplished. It wasn't until then that they could uh, receive the Holy Spirit of God. And, of course, we know what happened as a result of that in Acts chapter 2. Uh, that was the day the church was born. So, Reuben, does that make sense? Yeah, just it just clicked on me right now. <laughs> yep. When he said yeah. uh, the day of Pentecost. It clicked yep. on me. All right, Pastor, that that was that's what I wanted to know. Thank you, sir. Okay, my pleasure. Thanks a lot. Three four zero ninety five eighty five. By the way, one of the things I think uh, the chosen did really really well. And the beginning of the program, I I gave a quick mini review of the first two seasons of of the chosen because I've been asked so many times about it. But one of the things I think they did really really well is they explored the relationship between. Jesus and his cousin John the Baptist, and uh, uh, it was interesting. John's uh, doubts and and his uh, impatience. Well, you're the Messiah. I know it, and you know it. So it's time to get started. Uh, I, I thought I thought that was really really well done in that particular case. Thank you. Appreciate the question very very much. Victor says, Pastor Ron, how would how would I deal with the argument that? Right and wrong are subjective, and there is no one standard that exists. Victor, I, I don't know that we can deal with it other than we've got to settle that issue in our own mind. Right is right and wrong is wrong. Good is good. Evil is evil. We live in a world that's turned all of that upside down. So when somebody says, well, we're more sophisticated or we're advancing in the things that we thought were wrong back then aren't wrong... The only way that you can deal with somebody is by pointing them to the Word of God. And if they're not going to believe the Word of God, there's nothing you can do. Because as I mentioned in my Bible study yesterday, that apart from being committed to studying your Bibles, nobody's going to be able to stand against the onslaught, the pressure of this world to convince us that sinful things are no longer sinful. And they're not going to be happy until they do. So... This is one of those pearls before swine moments when somebody says right and wrong are subjective and there's no one standard that exists. You just tell them, you better be right about that because my Bible says that God never changes. And Victor, we all know this instinctively in our hearts. We know that if something was wrong 2,000 years ago, that same thing is wrong today. The problem is we want to do what's wrong, so we're trying to rationalize doing what's wrong. And this is just one of those uh, arguments that people come up with. Well, well, things have changed, and, and, and they'll use that to justify gay marriage. They'll use it now to justify um, a, the transgender movement. Um, you know, it's just different. We, we've learned new things now. Jesus created everything. And what we've got to do is stand firm. That was sort of the focus of uh, the study in First Corinthians yesterday. Stand firm, be immovable. So, Victor, you've got to be convinced in your own mind and never change. And never change. The Bible says it's wrong or the Bible says it's right. And that's the way I choose to live my life. And, Victor, that's the only way that you're going to be able to withstand this onslaught of a world that's trying to persuade everybody that good is evil and evil is good. Um, these are the days that were predicted uh, by um, by our Bibles. So thanks, Victor. Appreciate it. Let's go to Isabel on line one for New Brumfels. Isabel, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Um, hi, P Pastor Ron. I had a question hi. about what you had mentioned earlier about a church that has disciples and prophets. That apostles they and prophets. Yeah, apostles and prophets. Yes. Um, that mm -hmm. they would be like an out of order. Why, why would that? I would like more explanation on that because I feel what you're saying is true, 
by to my I'm trying to I try to explain that to my daughter and she doesn't see it that way. I try to explain okay. to her that when God's going to use somebody, the, he's going to use whom he chooses to give the message out to the person that needs the message, not a group of, of prophets in the church that will prof- prophesy to everybody. Okay, I can do sense? that, Isabel. Yes, it makes perfect sense. And, um, you know, Isabel, it's very hard to convince um, these uh, wildly charismatic uh, Christians and, and churches, uh, something they've been doing for a long, long time, uh, the apostolics, the, 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 the Pentecostals, and others. Um, people, men like authority. And so if I can raise up and say, I'm an apostle that gives me authority that God hasn't given me, and that's why it's a dangerous thing. Now, the, 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 the only way that you can convince somebody about something, the Holy Spirit's got to do the convincing, you can supply the evidence. And the evidence is the Word of God, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 and 20. This is vital if we're going to be in a church that's in order. Um, Paul is writing to the church at Ephesus, uh, and he's talking about Jews and, and Gentiles becoming one in Christ. That's what the church is. Uh, a radical idea for the time, by the way. And so he says, consequently, you are no longer foreigners and, foreigners and aliens, uh, speaking to the Gentile convert, but fellow citizens with God's people, that's Jews, and members of God's household, that's the church. And here's the key, verse 20, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. Verse 21 says, In him the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his Spirit. Now, verse 20 is very important. Because the word built is in the past tense. The church, God's household, has already been built. And for something to be built with any strength, there has to be a solid foundation. The foundation of the church is the apostles and prophets, with Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. And the way I always picture this, Isabel, is to have Jesus sort of standing in a corner, got one arm extended to the apostles, got one arm extended to the prophets, and that's the foundation that the church that's already been laid, the, the, the foundation already been laid, and the church is being built. And that's what verse 21 says. The whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. Uh, any contractor knows that when you build something, you only lay one foundation. But the language in Greek makes it abundantly clear that the foundation is already laid. It can't be changed. Uh, I think it's 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 11. says that there's no other foundation that can be laid other than the one that is already laid, Jesus Christ. So Jesus laid the foundation. He appointed the apostles. He had New Testament prophets. They're the ones that wrote our Bible. The apostles were prophets, but there are other New Testament prophets. Uh, Matthew is a New Testament prophet. John is a New Testament prophet. In addition, we know that the early church, because they didn't have a Bible, the early church also had prophets. Agabus is named. I call him the dramatic prophet. Um, uh, Philip had four daughters who were prophetesses. So this is men and women. And they basically uh, spoke the word of God. And um, that foundation clearly from Ephesians 2.20 has already been laid and the church is being built in the continuous present tense. The church is being built on that foundation. So when somebody says, I'm an apostle or I'm a prophet, and that's what happens in these wildly charismatic churches all the time. I feel like I need to say this again. We're a charismatic church here at Calvary Chapel. So we believe in the gifts of the Spirit. We utilize the gifts of the Spirit. But when somebody says, I'm an apostle or prophet, they're, they're identifying themselves as a false teacher or false apostle or a false prophet. Because that foundation has already been laid. 
And then the church, uh, going back to Ephesians 4, evangelists and pastors and teachers are gifts from God that will help build the church in these last days until Jesus comes for his church. So your daughter can say, well, I disagree. But what what I would do, and, and obviously you, you care deeply for her, is say, how do you explain that biblically? Ask her if those apostles and prophets, those self-proclaimed apostles and prophets, have ever been wrong. The Old Testament's really clear. Peter, and Second Peter especially, is abundantly clear. False prophets need to be stoned. Deepest, darkest blackness, Peter says, is reserved for them. If they've ever been wrong, what happens is you've got a bunch of men, and in some cases women, who are trying to control people in the church. They're usually doing it. There's always money involved. You know, they want people to give, and they live a lifestyle that is far above the lifestyle of the mean of their church. And so there's motives for that. But so ask her those questions. Biblically, how do you justify saying somebody's an apostle? Just because somebody said they were? When the Bible says there are none, and then, as I said, ask him, have they ever been wrong? And if God is really speaking to somebody, it's impossible for them to ever be wrong if they claim that position of authority. That is one of the, the reasons, and you didn't ask this, but one of the reasons the whole idea of a pope is ludicrous because throughout the history of the Catholic Church, the Pope has been wrong repeatedly on things, and he's supposedly the vicar of God on earth, and we know that's not the case. Boy, this second half hour went really, really fast today. Thank you for tuning in, Isabel. I hope that answered your question. You have been listening to The Word to Stand On for Life. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. And Lord willing, I'll be back tomorrow at 4 o'clock on AM 630 The Word. We'll see you then. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapel's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio.